Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I want to get right into it today, though, because as I say, we have a jammed agenda and uh, time's a-wasting. So let's bring in John Best. He is publisher of the Bay Observer. Joins us now. John, how are you today? Good, Scott. Appreciate you doing this. As always, always love having you on here to talk about some stuff to do with the city and city issues. And, you know, oh, you know, we didn't get the chat last week because I think after we talked was when they announced that the LRT had a, well, not a brand new route, but a, a twist, a, a sudden M. Night Shyamalan ending twist here on the way they're going to do the LRT. Were you surprised as I was that all of a sudden at this point we're getting new directions? Not really, Scott, because I think the, the problem with the project uh, that, that has become evident uh, really in the last year or two is that there's probably not enough money to go all the way from McMaster to Eastgate. They've got $3.4 billion in uh, 2021 dollars, and uh, we all know what's happened in the intervening two or three years. So I, I think they are looking, I think the, the primary reason for this change is uh, saving money and hopefully uh, with the money saved uh, to be able to extend the LRT as far as they can get before either the funds run out or they somebody comes up with more money. The, the issue here, Scott, was um, the, the original plan called for a LRT only bridge that would connect King Street with uh, King Street at uh, the 403 with Main Street at the 403. So it was going to be kind of a, I guess, an S-shaped bridge. And and I think the concern was just when you start building bridges and digging tunnels, uh, it's very hard to uh, correctly estimate the cost. But it, everybody, I think, recognized that that was going to be a very costly project. And if there was a way of getting around that, uh, it would be beneficial. So they've what they've come up with is is a way they can use existing streets and bridges. They will have to beef up the uh, Main Street Bridge over the Shadok uh, Freeway, and there's a uh, there's also a TH and B bridge right next to it that'll need to be braced up. But that's a lot cheaper than designing and building a, a brand new structure. Um, I'm not sure what the implications are going to be for uh, Dundurn Street, but obviously that's where the uh, where the uh, tracks will take a sharp mm. left turn up Dundurn and then another right turn on to King. Right. So for those who didn't hear this last week, and I assume most did, but as John says, originally it was going to be a bridge that essentially was from King, caught across that park by Christ the King Church, across that park, and connect almost to where the old spectator building is. That would have been a bridge. Now it goes on King, turns left on uh, Dundurn, down to Maine, and then turns right again on Maine. John, I think the other thing, though, that is going to be a big question about this, yes, Dundurn, I started looking at this and trying to imagine what traffic is going to look like now in that whole area, Dundurn, King, Maine, all where the highway entrances and exits are. I, I, I can't imagine, and maybe this is part of the point that we're trying to make traffic not all that convenient to get people on public transit, but I can't imagine that this is not going to make it impossible to drive in that area. Well, the the other factor is that uh, council voted to make Main Street a two-way street. Correct. And uh, 
if you look at the map that Metrolinx uh, provided, they're, they're, it's not their project, but they're, they're anticipating that at some point there's going to be a Toronto-bound ramp coming off the main street uh, uh, over the 403 or onto the 403. So that adds yet another wrinkle to that whole area uh, of congestion. So, uh, yeah, and I guess uh, somewhat of a concern that that uh, actually I expressed in, a, in an editorial was back when they decided to two-way Main Street, it seemed to me that at that time they hadn't taken into account all the other things that are going to be happening which included uh, the construction, uh, included the uh, construction of the LRT on King Street. So if you've got King Street torn up and almost impassable, now you got a two-way Main Street. Um, you know, at least during the construction period, I think there's going to just be some terrible um, uh, traffic jams. Uh, so that'll spill into Aberdeen, and you'll hear people screaming up in that area about, uh, you know, bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic. I'm sure. Yeah, no, unquestionably, and and again, if people can sort of picture it right now, Main Street again by the old Spec Building when you're coming off the highway. There's an ent there's a highway entrance from coming from the Burlington Way on the highway. There's one coming from down the hill, down the mountain on there. There's five lanes. They're talking about one of those is going to go to a bike lane. They want to widen them. One of them is now going to be coming westbound. You're going to have two that are going to now be taken up at least with LRT. That leaves. It sounds like one lane for all the traffic that will be coming from the Westdale area and coming off the highway from the mountain and maybe somehow coming from Toronto. And the light at Dundurn, it's not a clear shot through. You're going to stop there. It's going to, people are going to be backed up onto the highway. John, this is going to have impacts, not just on city streets. It's going to impact the highway too, I believe. Well, you and I are not traffic engineers, but um, there there must be some genius out there that's figured this all out, or if they haven't, shame on them. Yeah, no, I, I and again, you may be right. Yeah, you may well be right, and I hope you are right. I hope that there is someone who has an explanation for this, because right now I just can't picture it, and we've seen. Right now, outside the CHML building, there's an accident, and it's causing traffic chaos in this area, just around here. We've seen, though, if you have an accident on some of these streets, that it just, it, it's impossible to pass now. And if it's, if you're talking, that is, I, I learned, John, here's something else that I learned a little while back, that that intersection, that main street through Dunder and that stretch carries more cars every day than the link does. It's a hugely busy area of town to potentially make undrivable. Well, it's, uh, it is going to be relatively undrivable, and that, that is the strategy. The strategy is to get people out of their cars and onto the LRT, uh, wherever the LRT ends up, uh, wherever the eastern end of the LRT ends up being. Um, if it doesn't make it all the way to Eastgate, and let's say it ends up at the Queenston traffic circle, which was part of the original plan, um, what it's going to mean is if there really are people, I always question whether they're, who are all these people that are trying to get from Eastgate to Mac? I, I could never quite figure it out. But now if someone was trying to get from Eastgate to Mac, they would have to transfer from a bus to the LRT at some point along the route. Whereas if they just, the way it is now, you just stay on the B-line bus and you don't have to do anything. You end up at Mac. Mm. Uh, we got to run for, uh, for a quick break here, but do you think you said that the idea is to get people onto public transit? Do you think 
that all the people, not downtown, but all the people in Ancaster, Dundas, Flamborough, Stony Creek, do you think they're going to do that? Or do you think they're just going to say, well, I just won't come downtown then? I think uh, they will avoid downtown as much as they can. I mean, there are people that have jobs and they simply have no choice, but I don't see people in Ancaster and Dundas using the LRT. Uh, It doesn't make any kind of sense. It's what I worry about, that the city really sort of divides into two parts that people don't want to go into those different places. Let's uh, let's hope that's not the case, but that's that's the fear. As I say, let's hope not. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday in the Bay Observer, my first guest today writes, Ombudsman wants more transparency in Hamilton in-camera meetings. Uh, That is John Best, of course. He is the publisher of said Bay Observer. He is still with us. John, uh, thanks for sticking around. This is a... This is one that I think an awful lot of people in this city would applaud, the idea of fewer in-camera meetings and maybe more information about what's in camera. I just don't know how you do it. Because if the whole point is, if council is making the claim that this stuff has to be in camera because of legal reasons or something, it becomes tricky then to tell the things that you believe are supposed to be there. Maybe, is this just mean more lawyers have to get involved? Well... To a degree, yes. Um, the, the way the ombudsman put it, uh, it, it wasn't so much um, the issue uh, of whether the meeting should have been in camera or not. His complaint had more to do with the way the the almost zero information you get as to even why we're going in camera. And then the reporting after they come out of in camera uh, typically in Hamilton, all you'll see is uh, item number 10.6 will remain confidential. So there's nothing there. Uh, he thinks that more can be done to explain why we're going into camera, uh, what's being, to some degree, uh, what is being discussed without defeating the purpose of going into camera. He just thinks that we're not being very creative. I don't think it's a creativity problem. I think it's absolutely a uh, a problem of uh, just not wanting the public to know what's going on. And and it's um, the issue that he was adjudicating. Somebody made a complaint about the in-camera meeting where council found out about the trade wind friction report on the Red Hill. So that was, <laughs> we, we found out what happened at the meeting thanks to the Red Hill inquiry. It cost us 28 million dollars to find out but there was quite a bit of testimony about what went on in that meeting and it was basically counselors screaming when they found out that this report had not been released that might have had some bearing on all the accidents that were happening on the highway so it was a six-hour meeting and uh, someone uh, filed a complaint and i'm not sure you know it was three years ago and i'm not sure why the uh why the ombudsman just got around to dealing with it now but, but his, his general view was tell people as much as you can about why you're going into camera, which um, there, there's five or six different reasons you can go in camera, uh, be a little more forthcoming about explain, <clears throat> excuse me, about explaining which one you're, you're relying on. And then the other suggestion he made, which, is a, which I think is a very good one, uh, is uh, you should have a, a audio or video or both recording of the in-camera meeting so that uh, if there are complaints in the future, the ombudsman can just review the tape and decide whether everything that was discussed was appropriately in-camera or not. 
Yeah, maybe the th- fact that it took three years was too many in-camera meetings. Just, it just way behind, too many things behind the scenes that were happening here. But um, it, it just, it does seem that there is a default position. Though, so you mentioned the, the the friction report. This was also obviously, a, you know, a story with the, when the sewer leak story happened, and we were told at that time, as I recall. That, well, you know, our lawyers told us that this kind of thing should be kept quiet. We had to do this. You know, that was lawyer's advice. Makes me wonder if the default position always is keep it in camera. And we need some people who are not so willing to always make that the default position. Well, and I haven't frankly seen any great difference uh, with this new transparent council than what we had before. You still get the chair reading off this uh, this message on a card that, that explains that they're going into camera. Uh, I haven't seen any great reluctance by counselors, uh, some of the new counselors uh, to go to, to go in camera. So um, it, it doesn't seem to have changed, uh, even though the personnel have changed significantly. Uh, you know, as much transparency as possible is, uh, is what everybody hopes we get. But uh, we, the, I, I think Hamilton, and he mentioned it, he said he's written letters to Hamilton Council, said, you, you know, there's some things you need to change. You, I'm, I'm, he said that they basically ignored um, his suggestions for being a little more open about how they, how they report on these meetings. And uh, he's, he's strongly advocating uh, that there be an electronic recording of the meeting. I suppose the argument against that is that it somehow it could get out, but frankly, uh, you know, that's uh, that's up to the clerks to manage their process so that it, if it's not supposed to get out, that it doesn't. But you know, it, it's Hamilton, and uh, we don't always play by the mm. rules. And and it doesn't sound like, frankly, that uh, you know, clerks or whoever's been dealing with the ombudsman are particularly concerned about his concerns. Uh, John, I, I am loath to even say this out loud in this city for fear that someone might hear this and agree to the idea, but I almost wonder, do you put the ombudsman on full-time salary and say, sit in all the in-camera meetings, and if there is a point at which the ombudsman can put up his hand and say, this is no longer needed to be in-camera, bring it out. I mean, or something. I mean, because, I, I mean, we don't know. Here's the problem, and, and it's a valid point that they raise and you raise. We don't know what's going on in camera. This stuff could all be legitimately in-camera worthy, or it could not, and we simply just don't know. There's no real way to know, unless there is someone there who is entirely independent listening to this whole thing who has the, 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 the lever that can pull to say, okay, the window's open again. Yeah, it's not going to happen. Uh, we don't know what we don't know. And um, unfortunately, uh, notwithstanding the ombudsman, this is uh, something that was added to the ombudsman's portfolio. Um, I don't know how long ago, but uh, initially this was not something that the Ontario ombudsman had any jurisdiction over. And then they added it. And and now I think he, he said he spends, I don't know, 50 or 60 percent of his time adjudicating whether various in-camera meetings across the province are appropriate or not. So it, it's certainly an issue that, that somebody's concerned about. Members of the public are making these complaints, but um, I haven't frankly seen any operational difference. Yeah, we will, um, who knows, maybe, maybe they will do this, but I'm, I'm, I'm doubtful for the very reason you just said, the fear that somehow this leaks out and therefore it's too risky to put something on tape because, uh, 
You know, even Nixon didn't want things on tape because of fear they would leak out, though. You know, they kind of did, but sort of. Um, not quite the same thing, but you get the idea. John Best from the Bay Observer. Always love having you on, John. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Today, if you didn't catch this on the news already, today was the fall economic statement from the federal government. And, well, let's put it this way. Uh, It was a little less than a week ago that the prime minister said that the federal government, that his government has, all quote, always exercised fiscal restraint. A few people rolled their eyes when he said that. And today it kind of got backed up. Uh, The debt is going up. Uh, The federal government is expected to post a $40 billion deficit this year, which is larger than expected. And what it's costing us to pay the debt is ballooning because of interest rates and because of other things. It is um, a number of stories that have reported on this today use the word gloomy. I don't know if my next guest will use that word. Let's find out. Dr. Laurie Turnbull is professor and chair of public and international affairs with Dalhousie University. Thank you for doing this today. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Is gloomy an appropriate word or would you pick a completely different word? I mean, I think gloomy uh, is fair, is fair at this point. Yeah, I mean, we knew a lot of this, I think, because some of it, so much of it was leaked yesterday. And so there was there weren't a whole lot of big surprises in this. Uh, we knew that the spending was going to be um, to the point that the deficit would be bigger than projected. Um, lots of people are pointing out, hey, look, this is going to be spending that is going to make Tiff Macklem um, hike interest rates because this trying to manage inflation. So, oh, my God. So there's that side of it. On the other hand, um, people, a lot of people want to see some kind of response to the affordability crisis. And so the federal government is stuck trying to say, well, okay, we're trying to help you manage your debt. Our debt's getting bigger. Your debt's getting bigger. Nobody wants the interest rates to get worse because then everybody's debt keeps getting bigger. And so it's kind of a mess. Didn't Tiff Macklin, it was about a week or two ago, just say that, or maybe it was a little longer than that, that the government is working at cross purposes with him, that he was sort of begging them to stop putting so much money into the economy? That's it. Yeah. And so I think all eyes are on him at this point to see what his reaction is going to be. I mean, like, at this point, I think the government is, from a political perspective, no matter what they do, the opposition parties are going to, you know, some are going to say, look, you didn't spend enough. Others are going to say you spent way too much. Um, For right now, I think uh, they they would probably respond by saying, look, uh, we can't not spend anything because people are really suffering. So we've tried to make targeted measures. So instead of giving everybody cash in hand, they're saying we're going to allocate a chunk of funds over here, um, you know, trying to encourage construction of rental property. That's not going to happen until 2025. And we're doing these very specific things. And that way people will... um, feel some sort of help with the affordability crisis, but yet we're not, they're not flooding the system with money. But we'll see, right? Like, we'll see what the, the monetary policy response is. One of the headlines that a lot of people picked up on today is what Canada is going to be paying, is and is going to be paying to service our debt. Yeah. Um, and they're saying five years from now, by 2028, we are going to be paying almost $61 billion a year in interest. That's not something governments can just cut out of the budget. That's We owe that. That's, that is interest like paying on your mortgage. And that's, that's uh, uh, what, a third bigger than we pay on the entire military? I mean, it's an extraordinary amount of money 
that we are flushing down the toilet. It, it works out to $1,500 per Canadian per year. So if you have a family of four and you're paying taxes, $6,000 of taxes are going just to yeah. servicing our debt. That's, it's just, it's, it's such an extraordinary waste of money, essentially, that could go into other things. Yeah, and I mean, I like that's that's the challenge, right? Is is just looking at that number and thinking, good lord, like that's the state we're in. And there have been lots of people that have pointed out that this government is not um, is not acting with a fiscal anchor, does not want to observe parameters around spending in a way that they have to because we are in such an economically uh, difficult time. Uh, but at the same time, um, I think, you know, they would say, well, you know, but no, but nobody wants us to not spend anything, right? Like people are looking for help. And so I, I think we can see they're, they're caught in this sort of rock hard place situation and different economic theories around what's going to work and what's not. I mean, you can go out and span a, a whole range of opinions where some people are saying, good grief, you know, we've got to do, we've got to get, we've got to work on this. We've got to stop spending. We've got to get all these numbers down. And other people will say, but look, that people are people don't have a place to live. And this is not something that is all just because of COVID. No, it's not. You know, this is years in the making. This is a crisis that has been years in the making. Multiple governments are responsible. We can also talk about provincial governments and what they're doing to participate in all of this. Their spending is high, too. So it's all a kind of mess. One of the, one of the um, little bit of a head-scratching moment today from Christian Freeland when, I mean, you talk about the housing crisis. One of the things, I'm not blaming, it's, it's, a re, it's, a, it's a situation. We have had a lot of people come into this country. It is one of the contributing factors in the fact that we have housing challenges. And she said today, well, we're going to bring in a lot more foreign construction workers to help build the houses. And all I could think is, yeah, but don't they need a place to live too? <laughs> I mean, every yeah. time you bring somebody in, they've got to live somewhere. Exactly. And I heard a very smart person make a very smart point about this uh, when I was at a conference recently about how if you if a family has a child, you know, we're, we're increasing the population, but you don't need a new house right now. If an immigrant family comes, that's wonderful, but they need a house now. And so, like, what what are we doing? And, like, it, it really concerns me that Freeland was explaining today that that money for the, the um, to try to incentivize rental property construction, that doesn't flow until 2025. And so what's the plan till then? And she was saying, well, you know, this, these are our programs that are already going, and there's the um, fund that they've got to incentivize municipal governments to build, uh, you know, to change their bylaws so that funding will flow their way. And it's all just like, oh boy, what is this going to do for people today? What is it going to do for people tomorrow? Even the mortgage thing. Um, it, you know, do you have to wait to the point that you're completely screwed and you're in a bank crying because you're not going to mm. make your mortgage? Like, well, how bad does it have to get? Let me let me throw triggered. Yeah. Let me throw something at you that I don't know if you know the answer to this, but maybe well. One of the things, one of the ways, if we are facing a huge problem with revenues for the government to control spending, maybe even, although I've never heard anyone in recent years talking about even like actually paying off any of the debt, that's not even been discussed, but it's long been said, look, if we reopen our oil industry, oil and gas industry, the way a lot of people or some people have said we could, that's millions, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars potentially flowing into the federal coffers. But of course, we've got the people arguing about climate change. Do you think there comes a point when people's bottom, their personal bottom line 
overrides their philosophy about things like climate change. And they say, look, I, I got to bite my lip here and I really got to grind my teeth, but we got to do something like that. Of course, absolutely. People have to live. And I mean, on the one hand, you can say like, we, we're all screwed if we don't take care of the climate. Like when we can't keep putting that off, we can't keep putting that off. We can see it now that in, in over, over the summer, we can see wildfires. We can see different catastrophes around the world that are because of climate change. Like, it's not like we're avoiding, it's not like we're really putting off the consequences. We're not, we're living them, we're seeing them. At the same time, people deal with that basic need structure. You need a place to live, you need clothes, you need food. Then you start worrying about other stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, do I think that the liberals are going to reverse course on this and they're going to, you know, recharge oil and gas? No, definitely not. But I also don't think the liberals are going to be in power for much longer. And I don't know what kind of conversation Daniel Smith is going to have with a, you know, with a future Pierre Polyev if that's what happens. So yeah, I don't know. no, I wonder. I mean, I I, I wonder the same thing. I, I mean, I, clearly there's a lot of people who feel very strongly or dug in very deeply on the whole on climate change. But I also, you know, I do wonder if the conservatives come in and on day one they say let's open the taps here. We've got. All these countries in Europe, Germany was begging, Japan was begging for our oil. We could be bringing in billions of dollars to help cover some of these costs. And we'll be giving them clean oil that they don't have to get from Saudi Arabia or Russia. It's all, it's a win-win. That would not be popular everywhere, but boy, it might have a big impact on our finances. And yeah, but I mean, what does that do for our net zero goals? What does that do for our relationships around the world? Pierre Polyev doesn't seem terribly concerned with those things. He's, he talks about Canada and bringing it home and all that stuff, and he doesn't, he, he's not happy when the Prime Minister travels globally and has these sorts of meetings and makes these kinds of commitments. And so I don't know. I think that they could, things would be very different under a different government. It will be interesting for sure. Uh, that is Dr. Lori Turnbull, Professor and Chair of Public and International Affairs at Dalhousie University. We always appreciate you coming on here. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in a guy who, um, uh, not just doing great, a great job on CHCH sports, but also if anyone out there, if you're playing around with your phone one day and suddenly all the characters are in Mandarin, this man knows how to resolve your problem. His name is Bubba O'Neill. How are you? I know how to do it. I just don't know how to undo it. That's the problem. What a what a horrifying half an hour that was. We talked about. We mentioned on the show last night about in the press box the 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 sad whimpering sounds coming from Bubba O'Neill's chair when his phone went completely full on Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what to do, and I know you gave me some assistance, but oh, I don't know man. if it was helpful. It's um. It was, uh, it's what, it, it is truly a moment of panic when your connection to the outside world changes to a language. It's a, and it wasn't even, the worst part was it wasn't nothing against Chinese, but at least if it was in say Spanish, there are letters that Absolutely. you recognize or French, you could work your way through it. Sure. Um, I don't recognize any Chinese characters. <laughs> I know oh. you don't either. That was tough. It was, t- it was really tough and you're right. It had been French. I would have totally figured it out. Italian, German, anything. I, you, yeah, you could kind of piece it together. But when it's all in, 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 in actually, I, what we did discover is that there's three different types of Chinese. <laughs> yes. um, there's the there's the Mandarin one. There's the Hong Kong. Like there, there was like different versions. Yeah. I'm like, oh my god, and like, just, <laughs> oh, what a panic. <laughs> and the thing is, I still don't know how I did it. 
right? Well, horrible, horrible situation. That'll, that'll. I'm sure then, because you don't know how you did it, it will pop up again later. But hey, that's a beautiful segue because, you know, uh, if your phone is going to go all into some version of Asian characters, the question that the Blue Jays are asking and people around the Blue Jays are asking is also a question about something Asian, and that is, should the Blue Jays go all in? Because that's what it'll take, apparently. All in on Shohei Otani. There's all these rumors that the Blue Jays are a wild card or on the outside or a long shot or whatever, that they may be trying to sign Shohei Otani. It'll cost them probably close to half a billion dollars. Is this a player that you spend that much money that you go all in on? Well, I mean, as as we've discussed before, I, I, you know, it's really difficult, especially to the layman, to understand the value of what a particular athlete is in sports. So, you know, when I say you know he's a five hundred million dollar player, people are you know they you know they you know, they, they run it or off the road. Right. So, but you know, in terms of what it's going to cost you and what the value of great baseball players are, that's what he's going to be valued. You're talking about a two time unanimous MVP this season. Um, and he's that good. Um, Oh, he'll get the money. He'll get the money he, somewhere. He'll get it from somewhere. Um, but the problem is here, Scott, right? I mean, and I know this is, these are reliable. Jeff Passan has started something last week, uh, followed up by, uh, I can't remember who the other one was, but two reliable baseball sources have started the story that the Blue Jays are, are sniffing around. And the problem is, I just don't see it. I don't see him coming to Canada. Um, I believe he's probably going to end up staying exactly where he is. That's just my opinion. Well, I, th- I don't um, think he'll stay there, but I think he'll stay in California or somewhere like that. I think the Dodgers yeah, will sign him or San Francisco or something. Yeah. But I, I think he's—I actually think he's going to stay with the with the Angels on a shorter term, shorter term deal. Because remember, right now, and it, it's funny that you were, were saying this—he's kind of damaged goods in a sense, because as great of a hitter of, that he is, an outstanding high-end hitter, he's also an outstanding high-end pitcher as well right now. And has had, you know, the what is the equivalent of Tommy Jobs' John surgery? So he's able to play and hit and be in, you know, and, and be a designated hitter, but he can't pitch. But he has every intention of pitching. So if the Blue Jays get him this season, he won't be able to pitch. So and that's what I see: like damaged goods. He's well, and that's what makes him so valuable. That you've got, you're getting both. You're getting a star pitcher, one of the best pitchers in baseball, and one of the best hitters in baseball in one person. That's why in one person. We haven't seen yeah. anything like this since Babe Ruth. Even then, even then, I'm, Babe Ruth. If we go back. And my history may be slightly fuzzy on this, but I don't think so. Babe Ruth didn't do it at the same time, generally. He was a great pitcher, but an okay hitter, and then gave up pitching and was a great hitter. He was never, I mean, it's not sacrilegious to say that Shohei Otani is by far the best two-way player in baseball history. Right. Well, and, and, and cresting right now, and, you know, statistics would tell you these kinds of things, that, you know, when you... We have uh, metrics now that can tell you the value of a baseball player to to a team on an individual basis. We're looking at someone that right now may be the best player of all time, of all time, and, and that's those are big words. But statistically, he's held up. Um, 
And as they say, when you have the kind of uh, surgery that he's that he's having on the arm, a lot of times you come back stronger than you know, and your 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 elbow is in a better shape than it is than when you come out of your mom's womb, right? So, like it's it, it, he's going to be something else, and he's a, you know what, he's a good guy too, right? Like he's he's got the attitude. Um, Winning attitude, wants to win, not a jerk, you know, as we've seen sometimes with some of these superstar athletes. He's everything you want, and you're right. And in terms of the Blue Jays and the international aspect on a, you know, on the lone Canadian team, it just, it, yeah, it, it's a beautiful story. I just don't see him coming here. Yeah, and and the other problem that I worry about if they ever were, and again, I I don't, I have very little faith that the Blue Jays ever, if it came right down to it, would spend that kind of money. I just don't believe that they would. But even if they did, how then, what what have you then set the bar for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. that he's going to want and for Bo Bichette? And how do you possibly pay those guys? And then if you do, how do you have even $4 left for anybody else on the team to sign? I mean, unless unless Rogers decides we're going to have a $1 billion payroll, who cares? I mean, it, it just, it becomes ludicrous. There's just, I, I don't, I don't see the Jays being like the Yankees or the Red Sox or the Dodgers who will say, I don't care what our budget is. You know, Scott, and you're, and I think on any other year, I would totally agree with you, but I think it's different this year. Two reasons. Public relations department with the Blue Jays, it's as low as it's ever been. Based on the way they ended the year, it, you know, and then, the sort of, do I call it an apology by the management, by the two, you know, the president and the general manager and those press conferences could have not have been a worse public relations disaster. The fact that they've been knocked out of the playoffs and what you would call the wild card or the first round, or at least the playing round, you know, for the last three, three, three out of the four years, that's a major problem. And here's what I'm going to say to you is that I don't think long-term that Bo Bichette and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. will be Blue Jays. One of them will be, one of them will not be. Uh, that, that, you know what, that could well be. Uh, that could well be, and whether it's by choice or simply that the Jays don't have the budget to handle they, both. They, they can do it. They can do it. Well, you they know, could. Sorry, if, if I could say this too, sorry, there's a third. there's a third element to this as well too. Based on... The, the the you know how upset the fans are uh they were i know i'm sure you know you were big on baseball you saw the videos that they released today uh, that you know that they have begun the beginning of the, the part two of the renovation of rogers center which also comes with it a massive hike in season ticket prices uh-huh. Right, they reached three million people this year, which is a really good number. Not the four million of the World Series days. Now, remember that's a much that was a much bigger facility than it is right now. So, is it a little bit more intimate? So, they reached three million this year. They are not going to get that number unless they do something that is going to blow people's socks off. And with the prices of tickets that are going to go up, you're complete. We're now getting close to Raptors and Leafs prices now for a baseball game. Yeah. Those days of those, days of those you know, $15 tickets, even up in the 500s, they are long gone. And they have to 
you know, terms of Rogers, after the money that they're putting in to change this place, they have to find a way to get people to go down to the ball yard. Yeah, for those of us old enough to remember the days when you could buy $2 tickets and sit in the bleachers way, way, way back in the day. Uh, now, mm-hmm. uh, I'm figuring that pretty soon $2 won't get you a stall in the bathroom to do your business. You'll, you'll have to pay it, more it, than it, that. It'll, it'll, it'll get you the hot dog on a Tuesday. Uh, yeah, maybe. Maybe. And you know, the other tickets, like I, uh, last year, my son and I went to an NFL game. It had been years since I went to an NFL game and I was blown away by what an NFL game costs now. I mean, I knew the tickets had gone up in price, but I remember the, one of the last times I went live, it was like 40 bucks and now it's like 300 bucks for a medium ticket. And it was like, okay. So yeah, it's, it's just, it's the world of sports. It is the world of sports. And this is... You know, this is the funny thing about this. And when I say funny, I don't know if that's the right word, but we always hear about these athletes' salaries. And, you know, I know that we sort of, we, we roll our eyes at them and stuff. It really does though, that money doesn't come from nowhere. That money, it comes from ticket prices. It comes from what you pay at the concessions. It's these things. It, it, there are tons of kids who I was very fortunate and I'm probably many people listening were very fortunate that as a child, I got to go to some leaf games. Tickets were, you know, a really good leaf ticket might be 35 or 40 bucks. There's a ton, there is a ton of kids now who will never ever have the chance to set foot and see a leaf game live because even if you could get your hands on a ticket, Mom or dad could never in a million years afford that with the bills they have to pay and everything else. It's a shame. It, it is a shame. It, it really is. And, you know, you take a look at what, you know, I think we had an index that came out today about the cost of living. Yeah. Uh, I believe that there was something that came out today about that. I mean, and you, you just look at this, the reality of just living a normal life and having to feed, feed and clothe your children and yourself and, it, 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 it's out of hand, and you're right. I mean, it gets to the point right now that going to a sporting event at that high level, you know, becomes a special treat and that, you know, you're looking at maybe once a year or, you know, before, yeah, I, I remember going to multiple football games, Argonauts or the Tiger Cat games when I was a kid with, you know, with my father, and, you know, we'd go multiple games a season. That could never happen anymore. And then, you you know, you factor in parking and transportation you know, as you said, the food, everything that goes into it on top of just normal life, it's it's it's, it's right now at a place that, you know, it, it, that's dangerously uncomfortable. There, I would argue but, that probably many people listening, most people listening, maybe, that right now, if I had a pair of Leaf tickets in my hand and right. said, I will sell them to you at face value, that many people would say, with my mortgage, with my food bills, with my gas bills, with everything else... I'd love to, but sorry, I just, I can't do it. And 20 years ago, maybe 15, maybe 10 years ago, no chance that's the case. You give someone, you say, I'll sell you leaf tickets at face value, every single person probably would have grabbed them. Yeah. And, that, and that is a real sad reality, you know, but uh, I will say this, um, on top of that though, we're almost at a point right now because of, and I know we've discussed this on your show before. TV is so good now yep. that almost you almost don't even have to go to the game unless you really, really, really want to be there, right? Um, but as it stands right now, the only really way to get there is if you know have a it's a corporate situation or someone has corporate season tickets. 
um, it's, it's, it's just the only way you can do it and get a decent seat and then really enjoy the experience and being close to the players. It's just, it, it's just, you know, and it's not going, it's not going back, right? It's like not, it's not, it is not, going, not, and you know, I don't, there's no like inflation the other way. No, the players are not suddenly going to say, Shohei Otani is not suddenly going to say, you know what, I really want to help the fans. So I'm going to work for $12 a game. Right, he's. I mean, that's, and I'm being obviously totally facetious, but he's not. If the players' association would would fight it, they'd be furious. You take the biggest money you can get because then it moves this needle for all the rest of the players. All right, we got a couple minutes left. I do want to change tack. One thing, got a couple things I want to get to. I don't know if we'll get to both. Very quickly, if you're the Edmonton Oilers right now, who are struggling unbelievably, unexpectedly, and unbelievably. And it looks like you are probably a week or two, perhaps, away from your season being right down the toilet. Do you trade Leon Dreisaitl and try and re- and say this season is done, he's going to be a free agent in a year, we're going to try and get a bunch of stuff for him, or do you hold on to him and you pray? Wow. This, this, this is not even a million, this is a $2 million question and I even can't—I can't even give you a proper answer to this, Scott, because it's so baffling what we're seeing there. This team's on pace for what, forty, fifty-two points? They could win the the draft lottery again, <laughs> which yeah, is unbelievable. And, and, which, which would be unbelievable. And 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 again, with the NHL's point system and the fact that you're not getting three points for a victory, like we're already at a point right now. They're so far behind, and so many teams are ahead of them that catching. And passing those teams, you're going to have to go on like a, on I'm not, I'm talking like a heater of all heater. Like you're going to have to win in regulation. You can't share points. You're going to have to win like 15 in a row or something like that to get back to where that team really should be. Yeah, it's there's, uh, there's, there's structurally a lot of things wrong with that team. Whereas we're seeing they don't have a goaltender. They don't have a second goaltender. Their defense is maybe not as strong as it can be. You know, Leon Dreisaitl, will that get you all that you need? I don't think so. And he's too important of a chip to that team, is he not? Yes, but he's also going to cost you an absolute fortune when he becomes... I, I, if I'm the Oilers, and there's a team out there that will trade me an established, an established proven long-term goalie and a, a really good defenseman, and even if it's I have to give up Leon Dreisaitl and my first-round draft pick this year, if I'm the Oilers, because I think other than the goalie and defense situation, their forwards will be still be good enough. I I, I would do it, but I mean, I just, you know, it's uh, what a mess Bob, they are. You're, 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 you're going to punch me in the head? I, 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 I kind of agree with what you're saying there to, 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 to rebuild. And if, you, and if that's your mentality, I'll trade McDavid before I trade Dryside. Wow. Well... Hey, they, tra- they, they traded Gretzky and won a cup, didn't they? They they did, they did. Right? Yeah, they and, did. And, and they did. And now, mind you, they had a lot of good pieces on that team too. Uh, we we got to run. We got to run. But I got to ask you this. I'm not going to ask you about the Grey Cup. We've everyone said everything. It was fantastic. I don't think you're going to disagree that it was a great week and a great event and a great game and all the rest Amazing. of the stuff. How many years away are the Hamilton Tiger Cats from finally doing what Montreal did? and went Toronto the year before and Winnipeg the year before that. We are now the longest suffering fan base. When is it our turn? Oh, come on. You want me to answer this in 20 seconds? 
put it this that. way: Are they? Do you believe the Tie Cats are a player or two, or a slight tweak away, or are they a long way away? I think we're closer than we actually think. I really believe that. I really do. Like it's it's, it's not that far away. They're not that bad of a team. Yeah. <laughs> so, it, it, yeah. When you consider that Montreal, Montreal was a mess in the offseason. They couldn't get guys to sign there, and all of a sudden, look exactly. at what happened to them. They lost the best receiver in the league. They lost one of the more established veteran quarterbacks. So in this league, anything can happen. I'm glad we're not in Ottawa, and I'm glad we're not in Saskatchewan. I'll just say that. Mm. There you go. There's Bubba O'Neill from CHCH, whose phone network you can call him, and he can talk English when he answers the phone, or at least understand what the phone is saying. So that's a, that's a positive thing. Appreciate you doing this. Have a great night. Hey, thanks for having me, bud. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. This story, when I read this, uh, I don't own an electric vehicle. I may someday. I don't have any objection to an electric vehicle, certainly. I just haven't owned one. And this story, I will tell you, made me and probably a lot of other people sort of say, maybe it's not time yet. Now, that probably, that may be an unfair conclusion to draw. But here, in very short order, here's the story. A guy from Stony Creek had an electric vehicle. It had just passed the warranty cutoff of 160,000 kilometers. The engine light went on. They took it in. They said, you're going to need to replace the electric battery the EV battery, the price that he was quoted to do all this with battery installation and taxes, more than $50,000 for the battery, not for the car, for the battery. I am pretty sure that an awful lot of people who read that story and heard that story said, yeah, I'm out. Keep, give me my gas or my diesel or whatever else. I can't afford that. David Adams is president and CEO of the Global Automakers of Canada, joins us now. David, how are you today? Not too bad. How are you, Scott? I'm great. I appreciate you doing this. I'm sure you saw this story as well. What was what was your response when you saw a price of $50,000 apparently quoted to this guy for a new battery? Well, I found it shocking as well and a little bit hard to believe. And, uh, you know, I, I think it is a little bit sensationalist, but I mean, uh, the reality is, is that that's what the gentleman's experience was. And I think... Uh, from what I understand of the story, um, you know, the manufacturer uh, sort of went out of its way when it found out uh, about the situation and, and tried to make it right as far as the customer was concerned. But uh, that does seem like a pretty, uh, pretty uh, ridiculous figure to, um, to replace the battery in the vehicle, that's for sure. We don't know all the details behind what the people at the garage saw or whatever else, but is this mm. partly, could this partly be that so few people still, relatively speaking, own an electric vehicle or know much about them, really. They may even own one and not know a lot about it, that, you know, you go to a garage and if you don't know what you're talking about, you could almost be told anything. Well, I think it's a situation where, you know, purchasing a new EV, um, you're right. And I think for a lot of people, there's still some reticence about, well, how long will the battery last and will I have to replace it? And, you know, those are sort of some natural I think concerns with any new technology, but I think the reality is is that um, you know all of these batteries and vehicles now are warranted for at least eight years, and uh, yeah, a, a kilometer 
kilometer restriction as well. But um, the reality is, is that uh, the expectation is, and I think the early experience is showing, despite this gentleman's uh, circumstance, that um, the batteries will last even longer than that and probably could outlast the, the life of the vehicle. And, and certainly that's what um, you know, the manufacturers are hoping for too, because they don't want anybody to go through the type of experience that this gentleman went through. What is the tech? Wh- where is the technology right now? Because we know that in this country, the federal government and some of the provincial governments, especially here in Ontario, have put a lot of money, billions of dollars towards EV plants, EV battery plants. Where yep. is the technology right now as far as time frame for lasting and, and amount you can drive and all that stuff? Where are electric vehicle batteries at this moment? Well, the, the battery technology is um, continuing to evolve and, uh, you know, batteries are, are constantly being improved. And what, what I mean by that is uh, higher energy density and also, um, generally speaking, uh, you know, longer range for the batteries that are being put in, in vehicles now. So, you know, when EVs first came out, you know, I think the original Nissan Leaf, the, the range of the vehicle was maybe uh, just over 100 kilometers, which was maybe good if you were a, an urbanite, but not much good for, uh, for anything else. And, uh, you know, typically the table stakes are right now for EVs in a sort of 300 to 400 kilometer range in a lot of uh, instances, even even more than that. Um, so yeah, that that's sort of the range expectation that uh, I think consumers can have when they go and look for any new EV in the market these days. Um, you know, as I say, the, the technology is continuing to evolve and some manufacturers are looking at, uh, you know, moving into uh, solid state batteries away from lithium batteries. And you know, I think that's maybe a natural concern of of uh, consumers as well as, um, you know, well, do I want to buy a vehicle right now? Because I'm not sure where the technology is going in the future. But, um, uh, you know, our, our reality is, is that the, uh, the federal government um, before the end of this year will likely be bringing in a a national zero emission vehicle mandate, which will require vehicle manufacturers to sell a certain percentage of zero emission vehicles, uh, meaning pure electric vehicles or plug-in hybrid electric vehicles. Um, so this is this is the way the world is is moving. You know, you just mentioned about the the question about whether to buy. I, you, you made me think back to the day once upon a time, and this is really showing my age, but where my my dad went out to buy couldn't decide between a Betamax and a VHS because, you know, one of these was going to last. And we, of course, we bought the Betamax and, be, and we're instantly out, out of date. But I think that with the price of these cars right now, and they still, I mean, every car is expensive, not just these ones, but I think right. that is really one of the things that people worry about. Am I buying something? Am I buying the right thing? Am I buying the right thing or is technology going to change under my feet? And suddenly I'm left with something that now is out of date. Yeah, I mean, I think, as I mentioned, that that's bound to be a concern of, of most people when they, they look at purchasing an EV. But I think, um, you know, we've seen uh, the, the lithium batteries in, in vehicles become pretty much the staple. And uh, you know, I suspect that those batteries will continue to be the staple going forward. But, um, you know, I, I think it's very difficult to predict what the uh, what the future will hold. But it's... Um, it's it, it is you know much more evolutionary than say the the internal combustion engine where you know it's pretty much the same either either rather 
you know, we moved from uh, carburation to fuel injection, uh, but, you know, that was sort of about it as far as the evolution of the internal combustion engine was concerned. It basically still operated the same. And I think the reality is, is that with uh, with EVs, you're, you're going to continue to probably see an evolution in the um, the battery technology as, uh, you know, manufacturers move forward to try and, you know, find that sweet spot between uh cost and reliability and uh, performance from the batteries as well meaning not only how the vehicle performs but also the range associated with the vehicle as the uh, president and ceo we're talking with david adams who's the president and ceo of the global automakers of canada and with that job title i cannot have you on here today and not ask about this story that we that's been reported about the again all these billions of dollars being spent on ev battery plants across this province and assurances that this is going to be great for Canadian workers and provide all kinds of jobs and learning today that as many as 1,600 foreign workers are potentially or probably getting these jobs. Where do we go with this? Because this, this, the idea of all this money at least going in and people getting jobs was great. Is Should this have been predictable that if we've got people elsewhere who have this knowledge base that we should have expected they were going to be the ones coming in? Well, I think you have to look at it uh, holistically in terms of um, as we transition, make this transition, I think, to electric vehicles, whether it's on the vehicle production side, the vehicle service side, uh, building the battery factories. It's a, it's a whole set of new sort of specialized knowledge um, that, that is, is different, per se, than, uh, than making internal combustion engine vehicles, for instance. And I think, you know, the reality is that Canada, like a lot of countries, has a skill, a skill shortage. And that, that's why I think to a certain extent our immigration policy is such that we're encouraging, uh, you know, uh, immigrants that have, um, have the skills that uh, our, our country needs. So, um, you know, I think the idea is to uh, certainly employ Canadians where where we can that have the skill sets to be able to to do the work. But in certain circumstances, there are going to be situations where, you know, that may not be the case and the specialized uh, skill set that's required um, is only available elsewhere. But, um, no, I think, um, yes, the government has invested billions of dollars in these battery manufacturing facilities, and it's uh, it's reasonable that Canadians would want to see, um, you know, a, a payback in, in terms of jobs and uh, and economic spinoffs arising from that investment. And, you know, certainly my belief is, is that that will, will be the case, you know, despite mm-hmm. um, uh, some of the parliamentary budget officers' reports uh, out when they have, uh, have looked at these investments. I don't know exactly, maybe you know, I don't know exactly when most of these plants are supposed to open and be fully up and operating, but is there theoretically enough time between now and then that even if there were people who had the knowledge base already, is there enough time to train Canadians that we wouldn't need to do that? Is there, if it's a couple of years, is that long enough to teach someone what they would need to know to work there? Yeah, I, I think for sure. And that that's all part of the, the plan. I mean, um, the, the plants, as near as I'm aware, won't be ready for at least two or three more years. Um, so that, that would provide sufficient amount of time to... Uh, to undertake the training necessary to uh, to ensure that we have, you know, a skilled workforce in those facilities, both building those facilities and then working in them as well. And that is David Adams. He is the president and CEO of the Global Automakers of Canada. Really appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk today. Thank you for this. No problem at all. 
The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.